0: If you start a trip going in the right direction, the whole trip will end up so much better. Personal experience here. Yesterday, Cornerstone, the uh, youth ministry department went down to Great America. Not Great America, that's in Chicago. Uh, Magic Mountain, that's down there. Um, I grew up around, never mind. Um, And uh, I made the mistake of starting the day on Goliath twice and Twisted Colossus, all within an hour and a half. The day just didn't go well after that. Strong starts usually lead to strong days, lives. It's hard to recover from a weak start. Um, Just for example, if you wanted to climb Mount Everest, probably if if I wanted to, with the best quality equipment, with an uh, experienced guide, and with near-miraculous training, Um, and a well-chosen route, I probably would have a shot at making the summit. But there's a lot of things that go into summiting Everest, mostly how you begin. But if, let's say, if I I wake up one morning and I just say, I am climbing Everest today, right? I I throw some of my favorite books into my little messenger bag. I I flip on my favorite filas, and I start climbing up the mountain chances are good you will never see me again, or at least not the me you recognize. Um, How you start, how you prepare for such a climb is just as important as the climb itself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Some of you will instantly recognize this as the Lord's A Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons given by our Lord while on earth. Sermon on the Mount is from chapter 5 through 7. And I like to describe the Sermon on the Mount as like a mountain in its structure. It, It has two sides and a peak. Two sides and a peak. The Sermon on the Mount is also all about discipleship, what it means to be a Christian, what it, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, on the first slope, the slope that you ascend the mountain with, is Matthew five, uh, seventeen through 48. And there tells you how, as a disciple, you relate to the Word, the Word of God. The back slope that you descend on is Matthew six nineteen through seven eleven, and this tells you how, as a disciple, you relate to the world. So, how you relate to the word of God, and how you relate to the word world. And then the peak, the center of the sermon, kind of the focus of the sermon, is in Matthew six one through eighteen. And that tells you how, as a disciple, you relate to good works, how you relate to good works. And and if you're interested, there is a peak of the peak, a summit of the peak, and that is Matthew 5, or sorry, 6, 5 through 15, and that's talking about the Lord's prayer, how you relate to God, the good works of prayer. Now, how, how do you ascend this grand and glorious mountain? Uh, Many have tried, and many have failed. Many have left it discouraged and disheartened, confused about what it's talking about. And, And I would urge you this morning that the only way you can climb this mountain, or the only way you really can live the Christian life in obedience to Christ's commands, and not become proud, discouraged, disheartened, is to start in the right place to start from base camp if you will just another thing when you summit Everest you actually must spend weeks acclimatizing to the altitude otherwise you will die of hypoxia Your lungs aren't used to breathing uh, that little air up there at that altitude. You have to start at base camp, and you have to take your time as you're going up Everest. Otherwise, you will never make it. We need to spend time at base camp. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to understand the Christian life, what it means to follow Christ, you need to be here at the Beatitudes, This is the all-important base camp. Now, just a a personal side once again. um, Last year, Cornerstone, as a group, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and I was amazed, blown away, shocked by how important the Beatitudes were to the entire sermon. There wasn't, and I'm serious here, there wasn't a sermon that I preached in Cornerstone on the Sermon on the Mount that I did not, in my mind at least, think about the Beatitudes in. They are the cornerstone convictions, the imperative understandings of the Christian life. If you don't get these, if you don't understand the Beatitudes, the attitudes of a true follower of Christ, you will not understand the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we look at the Beatitudes, beginning in chapter 5, verse 3. Um, We see eight amazing statements of what it means to be a true Christian, a true citizen in Christ's kingdom, Um, and each one of these statements are packaged in these clever uh, situational reversals, so to speak. So uh, Jesus is saying something like this, blessed is someone who looks like a loser in this world, because that means they're really a winner in God's world, situation reversals. And he has eight of these, and we're going to read them now. So let's read beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness Surprising statements about the true citizens of heaven, true Christians. Before we dig into these, just a a few things I want you to note about them, please. First note their orderliness and their pleasing structure. They all start the same way, blessed. And the first and the last end the same way. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last, um, number 8, uh, verse 8 says is, oh uh, sorry, verse 10 I take as the last, um, ends with uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last also have present tense verbs. You see that at the end. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then down there in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Well all the in-between um, Beatitudes have future tense verbs they shall be comforted, they shall inherit the earth. Um, they shall be sons of God. I want you to also notice their beauty uh, their, bu- their beauty and their unity or unity uh, they all they all bind they all bind and balance each other out you, you can 't Pick and choose the kind of beatitudes you want to apply in your life. You can't say, I'm not a peacemaker, but I hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't say that. They balance each other out. And, and we see this kind of in how they're bracketed. They're both bracketed with the same kind of beginning and ending. Um, There's the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven in verse 10. They're all meant to be seen as righteousness. One, they're all meant to be interpreted through each other and together. And for this reason, I think it's very important that we study them all together. We, we need to stick close to them to, to help us explain, limit, and define. Now, frequently throughout this sermon, I'm going to tell you, look, look to the other side of the Beatitudes. And this is just my little way of reminding you, please, interpret these as a whole. All of them paint this authentic and rich portrait of what it means to be a true disciple. And there's one last thing I want you to note before we can get into this. Their surprise. They declare blessed over the kinds of people in this world that probably people would think are cursed. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. Blessed are you if you're hungry. Hungry. Blessed are you if you're poor. They're surprising. As a matter of fact, this word, if you study this word blessed, is very interesting. It has the sense of congratulations. And even those who are around you should envy your position. The word also has this idea of, of happiness, this element of happiness. Happy are you, which sounds weird when you read, happy are the sad an oxymoron jumbo shrimp but but this is the very thing jesus actually commands maybe you saw it later down in the beatitudes of uh, verse 11 when he talks about persecution on his account he says in verse 12 rejoice and be glad happy are you rejoice now i just need to say this is a happy situation not a happy feeling This blessed life is a rooted life. This blessed life is rooted in the objective future promises of an unchanging and faithful God. That's why this life is blessed. Not because you feel blessed necessarily, but because God is the one who is granting you salvation. And if these things, if these beatitudes are true of you, you can say over yourself, blessed am I, because God says so as well. So who are the blessed? Why is their status so shocking? Let's look at our first surprising reversal. Uh, First thing, first, happy are you if you have nothing to offer. Happy are you if you have nothing to offer. Uh, Verse three says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor, just like probably the poor are today, Jesus is speaking to those with nothing, no land, little to no money or possessions. They're dependent on other people to to get by. But notice what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who are poor in relation to someone specific, not just those around them. Blessed are those who are poor in relationship to God. Poor in spirit. They know they have nothing to offer to God spiritually. Uh, one translation, the NLT, translates it like this. Blessed are those who know they need God. Blessed are you if you know You have nothing to offer God, no spiritual resources, no power on your own, nothing beautiful or attractive to commend you before God, both now, today, and in the future when you stand before him. Blessed are you if you know this. By the way, this is the first piece of good news that we hear in the gospel if you are a Christian today, this is the first piece of good news, good news that you have received. That there is this thing called human impossibility. You cannot please God. That is the first good thing to hear from God. You know there is nothing you can do to get to God on your own. For example, Psalm 49 Verse 7 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can pay God back. No man can can get get this burden off of their back. Are you someone this morning who is working really hard to try to bribe your way into God and his grace? If you are, you may not look it, but you are probably miserable inside because the more debt you pay, the more debt you discover. Unless you listen to this first piece of good news that the gospel tells you, that I have nothing to offer to God spiritually? Listen, listen to the good news as told to us in Ephesians 2. Uh, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then down in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may this is good news blessed are you if you are poor in spirit if you know that you have nothing to offer to god if you know that ephesians 1 and 2 ephesians 2 is true of you and, and what's the surprising reversal of this person you are truly blessed it says in back in matthew chapter 5 verse 3 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven even though you have nothing to offer to God spiritually, you already possess the ultimate citizenship citizenship in heaven and notice it's a present tense verb there's is the kingdom of heaven. you aren't just a citizen in the future, you already are a citizen, even though you're waiting for the kingdom to come. We see this also spoken of in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Yeah, you may be out of country at the present, but your citizenship is in heaven in Christ's perfect kingdom. Blessed are you. And your citizenship also has great security. The more you dig into the Bible and learn about how this all works, you see the great security that is by faith, as we saw in Ephesians 2. It is by faith, but, but not because this faith is something great in and of itself. The greatness of faith is measured by the object of the faith, not not the faith itself. Your life is like a boat, turning and twisting, going up and down in a huge storm. Your life is being pushed all about, but it is sure and steadfast. Why? Why? Because you have an anchor line going over the boat, down into the depths, and that anchor line is like faith. That faith in and of itself isn't anything. That faith is connected to an anchor that is firm, hooked into the bedrock underneath the black waves. And that sure and steady anchor, as we sang, is Christ. Blessed are you if you are... Poor in spirit because you are hanging on to Christ with everything you have because He is everything to you. But let's be careful here. What does poor in spirit not mean? Just because you have nothing to offer before God does not mean you have nothing to offer at all. Once again, let's interpret the Beatitudes by the Beatitudes, it doesn't mean you have no noticeable Christ-likeness, no righteousness, or, or, or any appearance of righteous life before others. Look at the rest of the Beatitudes. In verse 10, we see these people who are blessed are persecuted because they're too righteous before other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are you if you know you have nothing to offer. Let's look at our next quick surprising reversal. Happy are you if you're sad. Verse 4, happy are you if you're sad. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What happens when you're truly aware of your spiritual condition before God? Well, you are most saddened by your condition before God. If God has truly moved in your heart, you are sorry about sin. Sin in the world, but most definitely about sin in you. First John 1.5 tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that's saying, hey, if you are close to God, if you claim to have fellowship with God, that means God's light is exposing sin all over and you see it daily. That's why you need to pray for cleansing all the time. Yes, Christ has paid for all of my sins, but I need to keep going back to him to help me grow and cleanse me from my sins. It's like when you enter a room that you thought was clean, all night you thought it was clean. You flip on a light and you realize it was not clean. It was filthy because there's little cockroaches crawling all over the place. It's like when you jump into the ocean and you suddenly remember, oh, I shaved this morning. Why? Because you feel every single miss you made with a razor. Or think about it this way. After you become a Christian, after you are humbled by your sin and you are poor in spirit, your problem with sin doesn't really go away. In fact, it gets worse. It gets worse. You thought... You just had this little cut. You thought you had this little problem. But when you jumped into the vastness of God and his light, you see it everywhere. The closer you get to God, the more sins and cuts you find in your life and you mourn. You mourn for your sin. All this leads to a life of mourning. You, you hate sin. This is the same thing as saying that the Christian life is marked by ongoing repentance. Blessed are those who mourn right now who are living a life of ongoing repentance in their life because they're the real deal. True, They have true regret over sin. They, they don't care about the consequences of getting rid of their sin. They want to be done with it. But what's the surprising reversal that we find here? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Notice, your your hope is not just that the tears will dry or that the hurts will be forgotten. This is a passive verb. Do you know what that means? You have a certain hope that someone will dry your tears and heal your hurts and completely remove sin from you some way, someday. Maybe you're you're sad this morning. Maybe you're sad because someone very close to you has made horrible decisions with their life that affect you that are causing you great grief? Sin is happening and you are mourning because of it? Maybe you're sad because you are so distraught with the sin that is being exposed in your own life as you get closer to Christ. Maybe today you feel more like a sinner than a saint. But to those of you, I would ask you to hear the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not because of any resource in you, not because of any ability in yourself to solve your problem, not because of your brain power your explanation, your understanding. Not because of any of these things. No, you are blessed this morning because of someone. Someone who is Jesus who will, as it says in Revelation 21, one day wipe away every tear from every eye. Someone who will bring every sin to justice, whether that is through um, his body carrying that sin to judgment on the cross or through him as judge, sending that sinner to eternal separation with God in hell. Someone who, even now, Jesus, who even now comforts us in our sorrow. He, he he comes beside us and he says, "Hey, I have dealt with your sin. I am going to cleanse your heart. I have dealt with your sin once and for all through the body, through my body on the cross, and I'm going to continually do it." Blessed are you if today you have nothing to offer to God spiritually because you hold on to Christ. But let's be careful here. What, what does sadness not? mean just because you mourn does not mean you isolate yourself from others or doesn't mean you maybe walk away from people you you can't take days off jesus has not done that look look at the other side of the beatitudes verse 9 blessed are the peacemakers they shall be called sons of god these kinds of people Move towards other people as well. They do not pull back. They do not isolate themselves. They may struggle with sin, but they continually seek out others. If anything, the sin you're saddest about in your life as you grow in Christ is your selfishness and that selfish bent within you. You are also called to love other people. Let's look at our next surprising reversal, our next beatitude, Um, verse 5. Blessed are you if you're unimportant. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. You you have probably heard that contemporary definition of meekness. Meekness means weakness, right? You're a meek man. I'm sorry for you. Yeah, that's someone who lacks assertiveness, who lacks wealth, who lacks prestige, who lacks... Um, possessions it's basically someone who's a pushover and someone who gets walked on all the time you're just that meek man but biblically someone who is meek is someone who is humble to be meek means you do not buzz about like a busy little bee with self importance to be meek means you don't have to clear your name every time And in every case, to be meek is a very strange condition to be in. You can let others speak evil of you. You can be patient. You can be gracious. There's this terrific book on the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones. In it, he, he talks about meekness, and I love this quote here, the Beatitudes become even more demanding, as if that were possible. It's one thing to think low of yourself. It's another thing to let others think low of you out loud. Yeah, That's true. I mean, we live in a in an age today where self-esteem is the most important thing you can have, right? You say, oh, he would be such a better individual if he just had higher self-esteem. Oh, she would be such a greater contributor to society if, if she just was more sure of herself. Well, the Bible runs right against this, does it not? The Bible says you actually need no self-esteem. Not high self-esteem or low self-esteem. You need no self-esteem to be a follower of Christ. You need to be unimportant. You need to be meek. How can you do that? How can you be meek? Well, if you are poor in spirit, you know how very little you are truly in God's eyes. And yet God is gracious to you. What's the surprising reversal we see of the meek? Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You will be a person with eternal power and position. This is a theme we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, there will be rewards for my disciples who are faithful. a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about rewards, doing things, doing good works for God versus man. If you, if you do them for man, though, it says in verse 4, uh, uh, sorry, if you do things for God, in verse 4 it says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then in verse 8 we see, Verse 6, sorry, verse 6 we see, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you and in verse 18 we see that as well and your father who sees in secret will reward you and a matter of fact a little bit farther on in matthew we see the same idea of what these rewards look like in matthew chapter 19 beginning in 28 jesus said to them truly i say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel he's talking about the disciples there And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Rewards. But let's let's be careful here. Let's understand what, what does meekness not mean? Just because you are unimportant doesn't mean you are content with your moral failures and weaknesses in your life. Look, look at the other side of the Beatitudes, verse 8 specifically. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who are meek also have a purity of heart. A purity of heart. You are not content with your moral weaknesses, You want to seek after God with your heart. But let's look at our next surprising reversal. Uh, Blessed are you if you are hungry. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now this is a concept I do not need to explain to you. You understand what happens in your body when you become hungry that food, that desire for food, starts to cloud out all other desires. You thought you wanted to read a book. You thought you wanted to watch this movie. You thought you wanted to do your homework. You you thought you wanted to clean something. You thought you wanted to go for this drive. You thought you wanted to listen to this sermon. Then you become hungry and you lose focus. And hunger usurps all other focuses of things you should or want to do. And and, and the argument, essentially, of the Beatitudes is like this. What happens when you have nothing to offer to God spiritually? You mourn, right? And what happens when you're truly mourning over your sin? You also earnestly are seeking after righteousness. Now, Please don't understand or misunderstand Jesus here. Jesus isn't speaking out of two sides of his mouth. Jesus just explained that poor in spirit is the attitude by which you stand before God and you have a right relationship before God. Um, Jesus is saying if you do not stand before God in a right relationship, you will not have an ability to do any good works. Um, but if you stand before God, in a right relationship, you will automatically result in good works flowing from you, kind of like the difference between a root and the fruit. If you are if you are poor in spirit, if you have a root in God, it will result in fruit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness matter of fact this 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 idea of righteousness here in the Sermon on the Mount isn't really referring to a right standing before God at all, but right behavior before God. Because you have faith in God, um, good works result from that faith, just as James 1, talks about works that authenticate real faith. A matter of fact, G- uh, Matthew uses the same word, righteousness, to describe Joseph in 1, verse 19 as a just man if you have a right relationship with god it results in right behavior before him as well and we see this talked about in titus 2:11 for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled Upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are market zealous for good works. This is what Jesus is talking about here as well. Blessed are those who are manifesting the fruit of their faith. Blessed are those who are zealous for good works. Why? What, what's the reversal? They shall be satisfied. They will, they will get what they are after and longing for and hungering after. Spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying, hey, you will get what you are after. You are, will get what you want in this world, what you want will result in what you get in eternal life. The people, the people who love God truly are after him, hungering for him, hungering and thirsting to be like him. But let's be careful here. What does hungering not mean? Just because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness does not mean you walk all over people and think you're better than them, look at the other side of the Beatitudes. You are also, in verse 7, it says, merciful and kind. Why? Because God has been merciful and kind to you. Let's look at our our next surprising reversal, verse 7. Blessed are you if you cover. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy, merciful, speaks of those who have a generous and forgiving attitude towards one another. Uh, Subjectively, this means you want to believe the best about people. But objectively, it means you know that God has been merciful to you while you were an enemy. You're ready to forgive, ready to cover sins that are confessed. You don't withhold forgiveness from people to manipulate them, to to use them. And your forgiveness is not temporary. It's it's not based on a feeling. It is also a promise. When you say to someone, I forgive you, you are making a promise that you will not bring this up to them again, to yourself again, or to others again. You will not let this sin come between you again again. And what's the reversal for these merciful people? They will receive mercy, it says in verse 7. People actually who struggle to forgive people around them actually struggle in relationship with God. They, they, it says this in Matthew 6, verse 14, where it says... For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Once again, Jesus is not saying here that you somehow earn your salvation by forgiving other people. He's saying, if you cannot forgive your brothers from the heart, you will struggle in relationship with me. Your, your relationship with God will be stifened and, and, and will suffer I mean, really, how important to you is what God has done for you in Christ in forgiving you of all your sins when you can't forgive a brother or a sister of something so relatively less? Well, let's be careful here. What does covering not mean? Just because you cover doesn't mean you cover up sin. It doesn't Mean you let people get away with things. It doesn't mean you let yourself get away with things. That is a sin. Cross the Beatitudes. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are still zealous for righteousness and holiness. Even though you are merciful, even though you do it with tears and with kindness, you are still zealous. Well, let's look at our next surprising reversal we see in verse 8. Blessed are you if you are inside out. I'll explain that to you, but let's read the verse verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, once again, purity contrary to the to the popular definition, cleanliness is not always next to godliness. You can look great on the outside. You can have a smile every day. You can carry the biggest Bible you can find and have an impure heart. In Jesus' day, this is what the religious elite were like. They were very clean on the outside. They didn't touch certain things. They didn't hang out with certain people. They didn't go with certain people. They didn't associate with sinners. But yet Jesus called all of them hypocrites. Six times, in fact, in Matthew 23. But we also need to be careful here about what being a hypocrite actually means. Uh, In in our day, we think of someone who is a hypocrite who does one thing and says another. Or preaches but doesn't do what he says himself. But, But the Pharisees weren't hypocrites like that. Think about that. They did everything that they preached, right? Their problem was that their obedience wasn't deep enough. They weren't actually obeying the word of God themselves. They were constructing their own orifice of what a, a righteous life needs to look like. They were saying, this is what God says, I'll do that. But they ignored verses like Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your Heart, soul, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus is saying here, hey, if you are going to follow me, you must follow me from the inside out. A godly obedience starts from the heart and always works its way out in your life, right? Uh, Jesus is saying here, if you follow me, you will hate impure thoughts and lustful daydreams. You're not just going to go after these outward things. You are for the heart. You hate what your heart does against God. You are concerned about those external things, yes, like stealing online music, wasting time at work, cheating on a test, but you are most concerned about what those things, what those external actions say about your heart, if your heart is defiled, it also sets a wall between you and God, and you're concerned about that. It says in Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And what's the reversal that we find for the pure of heart in verse 8? They shall see God. The, the pure in heart shall receive the ultimate joy of their heart. They will see God. This is the same thing that Hebrews twelve fourteen is telling us when it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Once again, this is not saying that the, the pure in heart somehow earn their salvation. This is the fruit of faith we see here. The, the pure in heart are that way because they know the ones who can, the one who can cleanse their heart of sin. They have met Jesus whose sacrifices cleanses the heart. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And they are also those who are pure in heart because they know they need to go back to Christ again and again to continually cleanse them daily for sin. But what does inside out not mean? Just because you are pure of heart does not mean you can't be wrong. It it doesn't mean you should trust your heart or be true to your heart. Look look at the other side of the Beatitudes. Verse 5, you are meek, you are important. You know you don't have truth in you, but you know where to find it. You know who has the truth. Let's look at our our next surprising reversal. Blessed are you if you get your hands dirty. Blessed are you if you get your hands dirty. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are those who are actively um, seeking reconciliation with brothers or sisters in Christ or anyone from that matter. But let me just warn you quickly here about what it means to be a peacemaker. If you are a peacemaker, you probably will not have a peaceful life. It might actually lead to more conflict in your life if you are a peacemaker. if you are a peacemaker you're like someone who goes to a dog that has just been injured. you'll probably get bit often the path of peace is the most unpeaceful of all paths. It is difficult it is hard. This is who a who a peacemaker is but but what's the reversal? What do we see what do what do peace makers get they shall be called sons of god they they shall get the ultimate honor a a name and and not just a name a a name means family resemblance when when people see you they're going to say that person reminds me of someone else well what do you mean when you say a son of his father or the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree you are saying he is just like his dad, a son of his father. When you are a peacemaker, you look like God the most. Just think about what God has done for you. God, who could have, and maybe even should have, stayed in heaven and out of your problem, out of your unpeaceful life, left the peace and glory of heaven, and in the third person of the Trinity, came down into your conflict and your problem and dealt with your sin by bearing your sin in his own body on a cross and died a shameful death for you. Also that you could be at peace with him. When you, when you are a peacemaker, you look like God. But let's be clear here. What does getting your hands Dirty, not mean. Just because you get dirty and deal with problems doesn't mean you become mechanical in relationships, right? You are also, verse 4 tells us, someone who mourns. You, You mourn with those who mourn. That is how you are a peacemaker. So here we are. Here are the Beatitudes. Let's just review before we do our last one. Blessed or happy is your situation if you know you have nothing to offer to God spiritually. Blessed or happy are you if you're sad because of sin. Blessed are you if you consider yourself unimportant. Blessed are you if you have the right kind of hunger. Blessed are you if you're a coverer. Blessed are you if you live an inside-out life or a life from the heart. Blessed are you if you get your hands dirty. And finally, our last beatitude is this. Blessed are you if you are hated. Blessed are you if you are hated. Now, let's be clear here. Why? Why are you hated? You aren't hated because you're a jerk. You aren't hated because you're mean or cruel or loud or defiant, or proud, or lazy, or selfish. You're not hated for any of those reasons. Why does Jesus say you are hated? For righteousness' sake. I mean, and and look down in his transitional, in verse 11, when he says um, you'll be persecuted for all these reasons and uh, Blessed are you for my account and and all of these things, he says, for my account. We we get the idea, for righteousness sake or for my account kind of means, hey, if you are following Jesus, you're going to look like him. You're going to act like him. Blessed are you if you get persecuted for presenting my gospel clearly. Blessed are you if you get persecuted for following me from your heart. Well, why are you hated? You're hated because... People hate faithful followers of Jesus. If you're going to look like Jesus, you're going to be like light in people's eyes. And you're going to be like salt in, in the wound. Yeah, love stings. Truth, no matter how kindly it is presented, is bright. But let's be careful here. What does hated Not mean just because you are hated by the world does not mean you think of yourself as better than them. Cross the Beatitudes. You know that if it wasn't for the grace of God in your life, you would hate Christ too. You are poor in spirit. So there you are. There's Jesus' definition, explanation of what a true citizen of his kingdom looks like. And right now he is gathering citizens for that kingdom, even now. Are you one of those citizens? Do these descriptors describe you? This is where you must start. If you're going to understand this sermon, if you're going to understand the Christian life if you skip over these things, if you, if you want to just get on to the doing of the Christian life and the rest of the sermon, you will probably die on the mountain. You, you will die maybe a death of pride. You will die a death spiritually of disillusionment or disappointment or discouragement or anger and rejection of Christ. And I'm not just talking, like I said, about studying this sermon. You will falter in your Christian life too. If if you do not apply the Beatitudes, if you do not understand what it means to be a Christian through the Beatitudes, you'll start living a life that is paying God back for sin. You'll start living a life that that wants to stop this mourning for sin. You want to get rid of guilt. You want to have fun. You're going to start living a life of angst and worry because of how important the world has become to you. You'll start living a life so easily distracted by this world. You'll start living a life that can't let go of sins committed against you. You'll start living a life of secret sin in the heart. You'll start living a life that detaches from other people and fellowship. You'll start living a life for the approval and acceptance of the world and not Christ. If you live out your Christian life this way, your life will be choked out. If you do not sit on the Beatitudes and learn from them, you will perish. So how will you start? How will you start your ascent? How will you look at the Christian life? It will make all the difference. It will make all the difference. And let me just say, because... It is, once again, very apparent to me that not all of you are believers. If you are an unbeliever in this room, you are not here by accident. What does your life look like now? Is it a blessed life in this world? Because then what does God say about your life? It will be a cursed world later. Will you listen to the first piece of good news in the gospel that blessed are those who have nothing to offer to God spiritually? This message is for you. But for all of you, I would say, choose wisely how you think about the Christian life, how you think about this sermon. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. It speaks to us where we are. It helps us where we know we are weak. And if we are not stubborn and proud, we are helped by it, encouraged by it, strengthened by it, comforted by it. I pray this day that your word will sound forth in the hearts of your people. And I also pray that it would sound forth in the hearts of the people that do not know you. I pray that you would... Make those individuals long for you. Praise in your name. Amen.